This is the Paul Kirtley Podcast, episode 41. The Paul Kirtley Podcast. Wilderness bushcraft, survival skills and outdoor life. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 41 of the Paul Kirtley Podcast. My guest today is Dave Canterbury of the Pathfinder School based in the USA. As well as having a popular YouTube channel, Dave has been involved with TV survival shows with both Discovery Channel and National Geographic. He's one of Morrick Neve's global ambassadors and has authored several books on bushcraft and survival. Dave and I have met a couple of times in person in recent years when Dave was at the Bushcraft Show in the UK and we've chatted at these events. But given the nature of how busy those events are, we've never really had the opportunity for a longer conversation. So this podcast provides the perfect opportunity. In particular, I was keen to hear Dave's perspective on bushcraft, particularly the contrasts he sees between bushcraft in the UK and the USA as well as to talk over the five C's of survivability and applying the Six Sigma concept. In the conversation you're about to hear, we certainly hit these points, but we also have a wide-ranging conversation in between, and we finish with some listener questions. So, without further ado, please enjoy the following conversation with Dave Canterbury. Well, Dave, hello, how are you today? Hey, how you doing, buddy? I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Where are you today, Dave? I know you travel a lot. Uh, actually, I'm in Ohio. I'm out here at the Pathfinder School at my house today. Excellent. Thank goodness. <laughs> a bit of home time. Cool. Um, Dave, I know a lot of the listeners will know you. They'll know your YouTube channel. They'll know of you through all the, all the work that you do. But I think what would be really good to start off with was if we could have a little bit of a sort of potted history of of Dave Canterbury and how you got started, because I know there's certain various strands to your interest in bushcraft and the outdoors and traditional skills. So I think it'd be really good to get all the listeners on the same page and then we can use that as a jumping off point for the, the rest of the conversation. Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I kind of got, I spent a lot of time outdoors when I was a kid. Um, I, I kind of got a little bit lucky in that my parents were divorced and I say lucky because my fathers were really two different type of people. My stepfather, he was kind of a woodsman, hunter, fisherman, you know, hunted mushrooms, trapped, all that kind of stuff. And then my real father was kind of an adrenaline junkie. He was a dive instructor. He flew hang gliders and that kind of stuff. And so I kind of saw the best of both outdoor worlds from that standpoint as I was growing up. And then, of course, I went in the military. And then when I got out of the military... I was kind of looking for something to do that was a little less stressful, I guess is the word for it, um, or less rigid. And so I started looking at primitive archery as an outlet to be able to practice a skill. And I got into primitive archery pretty heavy. And then I got into reenacting the 18th century and doing things the way the pioneer long hunters of the 1750s, 1760s did here in the Ohio Valley and Eastern Woodlands. And that kind of led me into that mentality of doing more with less to, you know, take a, take a, a word from Morse Kahansky, being able to understand how to do things with the landscape and then not have to carry so much stuff. And I think that was a, a main mentality of the 18th century long owner was not to carry so much gear, but be able to do a lot with a small amount of kit. 
And that led me into doing YouTube videos eventually on different types of, you know, small kits and how to do primitive skills in the outdoors and things like that, that were a lot of them were 18th century based. And that kind of blew up my YouTube channel and got people asking me, hey, where can I learn this stuff? Can I come and learn it from you? Which led me to kind of opening a school, which kind of led to everything blowing up from there where mm. it's at today. And was that was that the Pathfinder school at that point? It was. It was the Pathfinder School back in 2008. Okay. Okay. And what what was it that attracted you to that period of history in the first place? Because clearly you sort of zoned in on that and that was quite attractive to you. What was it that was about that before you got heavily into it that attracted you in the first place? A lot of it was just the simplicity. The, mm. the simplicity of things like primitive bows, things like flintlock firearms. Um, I had hunted some black powder in my younger days and so black powder interested me and that 18th century black powder firearms and things like that really got me hooked into that 18th century reenacting and then of course you know being able to spend time in the woods and things like that on a different level i think is is really what attracted me to it most it was getting back to your roots buckskin moccasins you know laying on top of a deer hide under a wool blanket uh, cooking in a corn boiler those kind of the romanticism i think of of being able to live like your ancestors lived is really what drew me into. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, j just for people that maybe are not in the U.S. that are maybe not so up on their U.S. history, where that period of time in the sort of mid 1700s, where was that in the history of the U.S. as we know it today? Um, it would have been kind of in between the French and Indian War period and the Re American Revolution. Okay, so after the kind of Rogers Rangers period, but before yes. they before the uh the independence yeah correct okay okay so quite a formative time in that in that uh, part of the world yes and it was it was during the time really when what we consider now as the east was the west you know yes. the area that i live in in ohio with the cumberland river valley um the ohio river valley all of that area at that point in time was considered the west because it was vastly unexplored mm. And so you had a lot of people moving from those East Coast areas and coming into these areas to explore, to survey, to trade, um, and to map. Mm. And those kind of things always interested me as well. Um, I've always been into map reading and cartography and navigation. Those type of things have always interested me. So that kind of led into that as well, being able to navigate without a compass, you know, being able to make your own maps, things like that have always interested me. So. Yeah. That led into it as well. Yeah, that was something we talked about briefly at the the bushcraft show last year. I remember you showing a, a sun compass and various other techniques to the the people that were um, gathered around you. And I remember having a brief chat with you, and you were saying that there was a bit of a resurgence of interest in those areas, even amongst um, the military these days. You, you, I remember you saying that that you know that that kind of skill set of natural navigation had, had sort of with the advent of GPS and all the modern navigational tools had kind of been maybe put on the back burner a little bit but there were some guys that seemed to be more interested in those areas again. Yeah I think um, well we trained some military guys out here not long ago a few months ago we trained a large group of military guys out here at the school and it, they were really, really taken with the primitive navigation. And I think what happens is it's no different, really, in the military than it is in our civilian world. We've got so hooked on the gadgetry and the advancements of technology 
that we've kind of forgotten a lot of the basic level skills. And these guys realize that, you know, all they have is a GPS. And if that thing fails, what do I do now? Mm. And so they were very interested in learning those skills. And I think that um, it, it, it's it's something that everybody should be interested in. And unfortunately, it's not one of those romantic skills like starting fires with sticks and things like that. And so it's very hard to get students interested in things like primitive navigation and, and self-mapping. But it's a big payoff in the end because it makes you much more self-reliant as a woodsman. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So, you, And I, th- I think even if you're using some of the modern tools, you've got that solid foundation of understanding in your brain that you can add those tools onto. Whereas if all you've got are the modern tools, then you've at their mercy. I agree. I yeah. agree. Yeah. So were you were you kind of making your own buckskin clothing back then in the day? Was that all part of what you were doing? Um, I have made some clothing in the mm-hmm. past, yes. Uh, but technically, the, the, the more buckskin type clothing, other than maybe like uh, leggings and things like that, most of the clothing that was worn back then was made from things like linen and wool. Mm. Um, the Native Americans did more with the buckskin type clothing. But again, that kind of faded with time as well with trade of actual fabric. So because th- there's a lot of, you know, buckskins are very, very uh, forgiving in a lot of ways. They are very durable. They are comfortable, especially if you have good brain tan leather that you're working with. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they have limitations just like anything else. And the ease of replacement and ease of repair with fabric goes way beyond that of buckskin and Mm. i think that's why you know those changes took place over time but yes i have made some buckskin clothing in the past Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so um i i didn't really know you when you were doing a lot of a lot of that reenactment um stuff on your youtube channel i kind of came across you maybe a little bit later one of the first videos of yours i think i saw was where you laid out a small amount of kit and you had your you know basically a very similar philosophy to the way that i think about core kit which is what what's difficult to replicate from nature so you had some you know cordage there you had a metal flask or, or cup and you had various bits and pieces and i remember you saying as well that people have this romantic idea that they can go out into the woods and find some flint or, or an equivalent and and make a blade and you were saying that you know that's really hard and all the decent bits of flint have been taken off the surface anyway and i was like yeah this guy's got a very similar practical way of thinking about it. he understands you know how you might do these things using nature but equally he also understands the practical difficulties of doing that in reality and that was one of the first videos that that turned me on to what you were doing on your youtube channel but that was i think a little bit later was it was that around about 2010 Probably 2010 maybe? 11 time yeah. frame yeah i'm yeah. guessing yeah. yeah um and that was when i first started to develop that you know that 5c and 10c mentality mm. and you're exactly right i mean that is exactly what that 5c's is based on is What's the most difficult items to recreate from the landscape that were commonly carried cross-culturally across time? From Osa the Iceman to the, you know, the hunters of the 18th century in the United States, they all carried those same similar types of items in different materials, but they were still the same type of items. And it was because they were hard to recreate, and they also directly affected your ability to control your body's core temperature and survive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So for, for those listeners that have maybe been living in a hole in the ground for the last 10 years, what, what are those five C's, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so again, you know, the cutting tool or cutting tools is number one. 
uh, combustion devices that you can start fire with at the drop of a hat would be number two. Some type of a container that you can boil water, make medicine, make charred material, things like that. A cover element that will protect you from the weather. And then some type of cordage to tie, lash, and bind. And those, those things are not necessarily one of each. Obviously, two is one, one is none. And mm-hmm. you should layer your kit. But they are the basis of building what I call, you know, the foundational basis of building a survival kit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also, again, it's not just a survival kit that you pack away and leave in a box or in your in a pouch until you need it. Is it these are items that you can use on a daily basis? One of the first survival kits I ever made when I was in my mid-teens, I think, was based on Lofty Wiseman's SAS Survival Handbook, and I made this, um, you know, the, the, the archetypal, you know, British military uh, t- tobacco tin survival kit, you know, with a wire saw and a scalpel blade and some water purification tablets and various other bits and pieces, and I used to stick that in a pocket, but it was an impo- it was an impossible task to get anything out of it and then sort of have the stuff go back in the tin because you'd spent about four hours packing it in in the first place. And a, lot right. of the, <laughs> and a lot of those items were not that useful in anything other than dire circumstances. Yeah, they'd be better than nothing, but, you know, you're better off having a pocket knife rather than a scalpel blade in a tin. The wire saws were pretty crap and they, they broke. And, you know, so one of the things I think for me as well quite early on was... The realization that if you're yeah sure if you're a soldier and you've got to carry a lot of you know you've got to carry your firearm and lots of ammunition and ordnance and whatnot then the survival gear is maybe has to be as light as possible and small as possible but if you're an outdoors person and you're using this stuff on a daily basis that survival kit and your basic kit needs to be one and the same thing and that that's something that i saw in your five c's as well that these this is equipment and material that you carry with you and you use right yeah and i mean you know there's a lot of ways of looking at that whole five c's mentality i mean it could be something as simple as you know i'm just packing something into my backpack for a day hike with my kids in a national forest so i want to make sure that i have you know some type of a reasonable space blanket i want to make sure that i have a metal canteen for water i want to make sure i have you know a little roll of paracords tucked away in there and a, a ferro rod and a lighter and it can be very small items that you're not necessarily going to use that day at all unless you absolutely had to yeah but at the same time if you're in the woods every day or often and there's no reason not to have those items like you said in more bulletproof fashion and have a full-on you know hammock and tarp mm. have a full-on fire kit you know with a, a large ferrocerium rod and a good cigarette lighter and a flint and steel kit. And there's no reason not to have a metal pot as well as a metal water bottle. And so I think that uh, you're right. It should be something that you use every day, but it can be something small and light as well. But I've always been a, it, it's difficult for me like you to believe that the contents of something the size of a metal tin are going to do you an awful lot of good, and except in very dire straits. And, you know, we always hear in the survival community and the bushcraft community, you always hear that, well, what if I lose everything? You know, and, and my my response to that is, is somebody going to steal your pants? Yeah. Are you going to be naked and afraid? <laughs> yeah. Because you're always going to have a belt on your knife, and you're always going to have a knife in your pocket, and you're always going to have a lighter in your pocket, and you can have some cordage in your pocket, and you can have a tin attached to your arm. You can have your canteen attached to your belt. So how are you going to lose that stuff? Mm. 
you know, unless somebody strips you of it, how are you going to lose it? So yeah. I, I think there's a, I think that's a fantasy, kind of like the Flint we were talking about there. It's a fantasy of what if I get stuck with nothing? Well, how is that going to happen to you if you walk into the woods prepared to begin with? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and if you look at, it's more easy than ever these days to even set up a Google News alert on lost persons and lost hikers and nobody nobody ends up in the middle of nowhere just having been sort of teleported there sort of captain kirk style with with nothing you're you 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 get into a situation with the gear that you've got and okay yeah i can understand that maybe you're doing a river crossing and you lose a backpack and then you're just left with what you got in your pockets or what have you that that's you know it's a non-zero chance of happening if you're doing lots of river crossing but you still you know the terrain you're going into you know what the risks are you take the equipment appropriate to that terrain it's it's highly unlikely as you say that you well it's impossible that most people are ever going to end up in just their underpants in the middle of nowhere with no warning exactly yeah. exactly i agree with that yeah 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 so the youtube thing dave as i say that's how i first knew about you did you you said it exploded when you did the you started putting the reenactment stuff on there and then it continued to to grow um yeah it kind of it was it was kind of strange because i i started out doing like flint napping with glass and things like that and showing people how to make arrowheads and and bows and things like that because i was into primitive archery mm. and it just kind of there wasn't very many people i don't think at that point in time it's not like today where there's 5,000 YouTube channels on bushcraft and survival. It was, you know, it was maybe 10. Mm. Um, and some of those were in foreign languages. Mm -hmm. um, I, I remember a guy, one of the guys that I remember early, early on had a channel called Hop X. Do you remember him? Hop X? No. He was a Swedish guy. Okay. An older guy. He was probably in his 50s at that point, maybe 60s. Um, but he's one of the first channels I remember being out there that I actually watched to see what he was doing. Hmm. and i don't think he's on there anymore but um so at that point there were very few channels so when people were looking for information it was it was as easy as going to a video that i already had and putting a comment on there and say i'd like to know how to do this or i'd like to know how to do that or, hey if you did this you could make that better or if you did it this way it would be better so it was a, one of those things where it was a two-way learning street for me where i could put a video out and get enough responses on that video in that day and age it wasn't Things have changed a lot on YouTube. Um, it used to be people would give you constructive criticism and they would send you PMs and they would tell you better ways of doing things or they would ask you for ideas or give you ideas or maybe um, ask you, uh, what if what if you did a video on this? Could you show me how to do that? Or, hey, you kind of skimmed over this in the last video. How about dedicating a video to only that? And those kind of things helped my channel grow exponentially. Hmm. Nowadays, the YouTube environment is so much different. It's, it's just... It's a shame the where, where YouTube is right now. It's really kind of a shame with our genre because, you know, YouTube has limited the amount of money that people can make on YouTube. They, they do a lot of advertising for certain areas and certain genres. There's a political agenda on YouTube now that that's, shouldn't be there. And so YouTube's changed a lot. And I think not only has the YouTube itself changed, but the viewership has changed. And you've gotten a new group of viewers on there now. And for lack of a better word, you know, you have all the millennials on there now. Mm. And so, and they're much freer with their ability to say things on social media that probably shouldn't be said sometimes. <laughs> and 
So I think that that detours people sometimes from making videos where you might get good content from people. You know, the first time somebody gives them gets on there and they're, they're you don't have no idea who they are because their channel is ABC one, two, three, and you have no idea who they are. And they just read you the right act for something that you did or something that you didn't do or something they thought could be done better. But yet they have no videos on their channel. Those type of things detour people from making YouTube videos. And I think that's a bad thing. Yeah. And so when you ask me how my channel kind of blew up, it blew up in a time when it was able to blow up for the right reasons. Mm. And I think those times have passed. Yeah. And so now you have to do different things to get your channel to, to expand. And even then, it's difficult because of the amount of channels that are out there. I get questions from people every day. How can I make money off YouTube? How can I get my channel bigger? How can I get more subscribers? And I really, honestly, don't have the answer. Mm. Yeah, because I mean, YouTube. I mean, YouTube's not that much older than ten years old, is it? So when you started your channel, no, it's really it was not. in the first few years of YouTube. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's been a big. But it's come a long way. Yeah, been massive growth since then, and of course, Google bought them early days, and 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 they haven't looked back, you know. And yeah, even even on my even on my channel, my my channel's relatively modest compared to to yours and some of the other big you know bushcraft channels but you know i get that you know people don't know who you are and not that they should know who we are you know 99.9 percent .9 of the world's population have never heard of either of us but i mean the world's a big place but people arrive on your youtube channel they watch your video and then they're giving you a hard time about what you're wearing or how you said something or you know what you're doing and couldn't you do it like this and why aren't you doing it? and they've never even tried it themselves or they've never had, a, they've, they, like you say, there's, there's no videos, they're not contributing anything themselves. And yeah, it's it's hard to keep putting out material that you really, the only reason you're putting it out is to try and share what you know and help people. And you're getting these trolls that are giving you a hard time. And yeah, it's I, I find it difficult sometimes to kind of find the motivation to kind of step into that fray, as it were. Right. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's difficult. It really is. But, you know, again, it's just a product of the environment that we live in, I guess, nowadays. And so it is what it is. You either kind of have to deal with it. kind of goes with the territory type of thing and either decide to deal with it or not. I've got to the point now where if somebody puts something on a YouTube video of mine that's non-productive in any way, shape, or form, I just block them mm. and be done with it. Yeah. Don't even but try. Don't have to worry about them doing on next year. No, and you don't even, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I used to try and, you know sort of bring people around and you know kind of get them to see both sides of the argument and whatever and a lot of people are just not interested in that they've they've already formed their view and they're being negative and they're not being they're not they're not contributing anything and yeah it's 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 easier to just remove their comment and not let them comment again right yeah 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 but you i'm you, glad i'm not the only one that has this problem or at least i'm glad it's not the u.s that only has that problem because no i, I know think, a lot of guys in the u.s that have the same problem but yeah i'm glad it's your problem too in a way <laughs> <laughs> yeah well a problem shared is a problem halved do they say don't they so uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right that's right maybe we can find a solution together while we're at it well yeah i just wonder who all these kind of you know stealth bushcraft and survival experts are that you know we know quite a few people in the industry between us and in the community and you know it's not those guys that are trolling our channel so it's it's there's clearly some kind no, of se secret not. society of bushcraft experts somewhere that we don't know about so. <laughs> <laughs> i agree, I agree. <laughs> 
maybe one day they'll let us in. It's like, you know, it's like... Maybe, you never know. No, no. You never know. No. So you continue with your, your YouTube channel, though. You've, you've written some books as well, Dave. Is, is your main motivation education, would you say, now? It always, ha it always has been. You know, that's always been the core value of mine is to get that information out there. I've, I've never believed, and I, I think this really goes way back in my mindset, all the way back to trapping. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I know that trapping is not a big thing in the UK anymore, um, and you're very limited on what you can do. But in the U.S., you know, in the older days, trapping was kind of a secret art, very much like people thought bushcraft was for such a long period of time. Mm. And nobody wanted to pass that information on to someone else for fear they might catch more fur than they would, or they might invade their trapping area and catch their animals and take their money and take their livelihood. And so it was very secretive. And the people that w did want to teach it to people wanted to charge an exorbitant amount of money for that. Right. And so my mentality has always been that same way with bushcraft and survival. It's, none of it's rocket science. None of it is some secret thing that you have to have a college education to understand. No. And so why do people want to charge an exorbitant amount of money to teach it to you? It's. I mean, I can understand if you're doing something that is a canoe trip in the middle of Sweden or Canada where there's costs involved in getting there and costs involved in logistics that you have to charge according to that. And you've got to pay instructors. But at the same time, you know, when I see people charge, you know, $500 a day for someone to come to a course or $600 a day for someone to come to a course to learn to make a fire, mm. I think to myself, how ridiculous is that? Yeah. You know, where where do you even think that your time is worth that kind of money or the fact that you're going to show someone how to start fires worth that kind of money? Because all you're really doing is reducing, reducing their learning curve. They could learn it themselves over time. You're just reducing their learning curve. And I just it just baffles me. And I think that that's always been my mindset. Get the information out there to people the best way you can. And really, the books were more selfishly uh, a desire of mine to leave a legacy mm -hmm. behind after I'm gone. You know, I find myself daily reading books that are older than I am. Mm. How old are you now, Dave? I'm 55. Right. Okay. And so I read books every day that are much older than I am. Some of them older than my father and my grandfather. Mm -hmm. And so I think about that and I think about, you know, books are kind of a timeless thing that people are always going to go to, even in this digital world, books will always be something that people refer back to. You know, you look at the, you look at movies, um, and things that talk about that, even after apocalyptic events, books are sought out. Yes. And I think that that legacy of being able to leave that behind in written form is what really motivated me to write the books. But at the same time, it's another way to get that education out there to people that's not expensive. Yeah. You know, I don't write books that cost $50. I write books that cost $15. Yeah. And so it's not that, and they're on sale a lot of times on Amazon for 8 and $9. So it's not expensive to get a pile of information in your hand at one time yeah. that you don't have to turn your computer on to find it. It's right there in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. It's a few cups of coffee or a breakfast or something, isn't it? I mean, it's not, right. it's not a lot of money. No, a lot of information there. Yeah. And it's portable. As you say, people can take it to the woods with them and try stuff out correct and apply correct. It. Yeah. And, I, 
And, you know, there's nothing books are nothing new. You know, you, you you write a book and obviously whatever you wrote in that book, there's there's probably nothing new in the world of bushcraft. Mm. When you look at there's so many things that people have done over time in other countries and in other cultures. There's probably nothing new in bushcraft. So anything that you write, you've most likely learned from someone else. You may have a technique in there that you've figured out a way to do it easier or faster or something like that in your own mind. And not necessarily that somebody else didn't figure it out before you did. But at the same time, I think what, what it boils down to is the information that you put in a book is probably already out there in another book somewhere. Um, no matter what you can write, but you're giving it new life because someone's going to buy that book because they want to hear what you have to say about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're not, they may buy my book before they go out and buy a book or seek out a book by George Washington Sears because they don't even know who he is. Yeah. I know who he is. I've read his books. I've learned from him. And if I could transfer that information into a new book in my own words and put my own spin on it and somebody buys that, then they got information they may have never gotten any other way. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, some of these books are quite, I mean, th there have been a few reprints of some of the old books in recent years, but some of them I've, you know, like some of, um, some of the woodcraft and camping books from yeah. the, sort of the early 20th century, I've had to pay quite a lot of money to get hold of, you know, books that were printed in, you know, 1919 or 1915 or whatever. And yeah. that, that's not an option for a lot of people. And there aren't that necessarily that many of them going around either to get hold of. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I have a whole bookshelf full of them and it took me years and years and years to find them. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. So yeah, giving it, giving it sort of fresh life and currency makes complete sense to me. Um, and are you trying to, are you with your books, are you trying to chunk things down a bit more maybe than things were in the past in terms yeah, of giving and, and also different... bring it to, bring it into a, maybe a different level of language. Mm. You know, a lot of the books that were written in the early 20th century, the language was a little different. So sometimes it's a little hard to understand what exactly they were saying, or it's easy to misinterpret what they were saying. And so if you can bring that to a modern use of the English language, or at least the hillbilly English that we speak over here, <laughs> um, <laughs> given respect or respects due, the English language didn't come from over here obviously but <laughs> not um, everybody realizes that yeah, yeah I I, that, that's another youtube thing that i get it's like where are you from you've got a real weird accent and i'm like no i'm i'm, I'm english you know it's just like <laughs> <laughs> so bringing that back into the books i think is important too and i do try to bring things down to a level and like i said i don't think any of this stuff is rocket science and i think a, a sixth grade education can understand about anything that we teach and so if you if you write at that level, if you write at the level where any, you know, younger teenager can understand it, I think you've I think you've gained something there as well. Yeah. And I think that's a good age to have people get into your writing and your stuff as well. I mean, like, like I mentioned before, you know, I was in my teens when I got a copy of Lofty Wiseman's SAS Survival Handbook and I was making that tobacco tin and I was seeking out other information and you know after that I think I got Lofty's book when I was 13 and you know I was seeking out other information after that so you, you know uh, uh, somebody that's in their mid mid to late teens is is really open to learning lots and you know capable of learning lots and so yeah absolutely I think that's a a good good age at which to to pitch it yeah I think so too. And it, mm. you know, that, that age really is kind of the, 
not only is that the age when kids start to kind of develop their own mind on what they want to learn and what they want to do, it's also kind of when parents start to turn loose of the apron strings and let them kind of do things on their own a little more. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I probably wouldn't be apt to let, you know, an eight-year-old child go out to the woods by themselves, but it wouldn't bother me to let a 15 or 16-year-old kid do that. Yeah, sure. Sure. You know, so I think that freedom allows, you know, for them to learn as well. And that's, I think, again, that's what, like you said, that's the age that you're really targeting to try to pique a kid's interest in something. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And then it becomes a lifelong interest, hopefully, as well. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you talked about putting your own spin on certain things, Dave. One thing I noticed, um, again, quite early on and seeing some of your uh, YouTube videos, you know, getting on for 10 years ago, was your mention of this concept of Six Sigma. Yeah. Um, that's maybe a concept that, it's a concept, that wasn't it GE that, that originated that concept? I'd, I'd kind of come across it more in industry, but you clearly... It was actually Motorola. Motorola, was it, right? Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. So what what was your kind of aha moment with connecting the dots between that sort of, I guess, um, sort of more industrial concept with what sure. you're doing outdoors? Well, I'm, I'm an engineer by trade. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, it was an automotive engineer by trade, and... One of the things that's a very simple core uh, core theme, I guess what you'd call it too, Six Sigma, is what's called Y equals F of X. And that's a complicated algebraic formula, I guess, for something as simple as every output is affected by the inputs, and every input has variation. Mm-hmm. And if you control the variation within the inputs, you get the same output every time. So to dummy that down, it means that everything we do even in bushcraft, requires certain things that have to be the same to get the same outcome every time. And if there's any variation within those pieces and parts or the way we do things, it changes the way the outcome happens. Mm-hmm. And so when we can figure out how to control all of that, we can get things done the same way every time and build muscle memory. Mm-hmm. So how would you practically have somebody think about that in the field um, in terms of learning a particular technique? Um, I th- okay, let's just take something as simple as using a ferrocerium rod mm-hmm. to start a fire, okay? So your, your end result is that you want to fire. Your inputs to starting that fire are the material that you're striking, your tinder source, your ferrocerium rod, and then whatever you're using to strike that ferrocerium rod with and your motor function to strike the rod. And then you have certain variations within all of those things you have to eliminate. Your tinder bundle has to be dry. It has to be highly combustible. It has to be processed in the correct way. It has to be made from the correct material. If you eliminate all of those variables, you have a viable tinder bundle. Your ferrocerium rod could be hard or it could be soft. For an emergency scenario, I would say you want it to be soft because that's going to be indicative to remove more material from the rod, which is really what you want in the end result. So I want a soft rod. I want that rod to be at a length that I can get the maximized contact time with that rod to remove more material. So a six inch rod is gonna be better than a one inch rod. So I eliminate that variable. If my rod is of a diameter that is larger, it's gonna be less apt to break, it's going to last longer, and I'm gonna have more surface area I'm in contact with over the length of that rod. So if it's a half inch, it's gonna be better than an eighth inch rod. So I eliminate that variation. My striker has to have a 90-degree spine on it. It has to be a harder material than the rod, 
and it has to maintain that 90-degree spine over the life of me striking that rod with it. So it has to be made from a good, solid material. If it's a knife, it should be something at least of like a 1095 minimum. Tungsten strikers are always a good option. So if I eliminate the variation within my striker, I'm always going to remove the maximum material from the rod. And then I have the motor functions within that striking of the rod. Do I have the correct angle of the striker? Am I holding the rod still and pushing the knife? Or am I holding the rod still and pulling the rod against the knife, which gives me leverage on the knife in a stationary situation? Plus, it directs my sparks into my tender bundle better if I'm just trying to strike into a solid tender bundle. Mm -hmm. And so all of those variations within the inputs, if I figure out which ones to eliminate and which ones to make repetitive, and that's the other thing with, with Six Sigma is reproducibility and repeatability. Mm-hmm. Can I do it the same way every time? And is it reproducible for someone else? Can I do it the same way every time? And can I teach someone else to do it that exact same way? Yeah. Then it becomes a repeatable process with reproducibility. And if I eliminate the variation within all those inputs, I'm going to get the same result every single time. Mm-hmm. Makes, that's it in a nutshell. No, that's cool. That's 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 a nice example. Thank you. I'm sure um, the listeners will I think it's always good to have some worked examples um, when you're talking about these concepts. You know, I, I, I kind of think in similar ways with, you know, bow drill friction firelighting. There, there's certain things which need to be done in a certain way to get the result that you're looking for and if you cut corners then you're going to end up with a less certain result and um yeah it's the same it's the same kind of principle it is very much the same yeah yeah so where do we go from there what one (laughs) (laughs) what one one thing i've noticed as well with you dave is that and I don't know, I don't know if this is intentional or not, but you seem to spend periods of time focusing on specific skill sets. So I, I noticed a little while ago you were spending quite a lot of time on on trapping. I remember a little bit of time before that you seemed to, you know, certainly on your Instagram, you were posting quite a few things about being out in the woods look, looking at fungi and learning more fungi. Um, is that something that's important to you to have times where you're learning for yourself as well? It is, and it's, I think it's an important thing for anybody to understand, but what I call that is immersion training. In mm-hmm. other words, I'm going to concentrate on a skill until I can't do it wrong, mm-hmm. and, and I call that immersion training, and I take periods of time in my training to immerse myself in a certain aspect of, of a skill set, like you said, like collecting fungi and identifying fungi, whether it's blacksmithing, whether it's trapping, whether it's wood carving whether it's, you know, the bow drill and friction fire, no matter what it is, I try to immerse myself in that for a certain period of time and do nothing else but concentrate on doing that until I almost can't do it wrong. Mm-hmm. And once I get to that point, then I move to something else. Mm-hmm. And I always come back and revisit those things later. I've had sort of conversations with people around this. I mean, personally, I'm of a similar mindset that you you focus on an area that you want to um, progress in and, you know, maybe spend, I don't know, 80% of your time, you know, kind of this 80-20 principle seems to crop up a fair bit in my thinking that if you spend 80% of your time working on things that you would like to improve, then you will will improve. But I also think that personally for me... If I spend 
a solid block of time on something, it has a greater effect in terms of retention of the of the knowledge and the skill as if, say you spent, I don't know, a month doing something and focusing on that or two months rather than spending a few days every month over the course of a year. Um, there's some, something about that solid block of time. But I have had people disagree with me on that, you know, people that come from different educational backgrounds. Um, but for me personally, I'd agree with you that having that having that immersion and solid focus on one area, it seems to work for me. And, and I think people probably differ in the way they learn. Everybody learns mm. things at a different pace. Everybody learns things differently. Some people are visual learners. Some people can look, easily learn by example. Some people can easily learn by reading. But I think for me, I'm the same way, Paul. And it's always worked for me, and that's why I do it, oh. is to just concentrate on something until, again, until I can't do it wrong. Yeah. And then come back to it later. And and what guys, so maybe this is where the link is, because I, I had a guy who had been educated are you familiar with the montessori schools where they're kind of quite not alternative isn't the right word but they they have a they allow the kids to kind of direct their own education a little bit more so he he replied to a i videoed a, a, a presentation and that i'd done at the bushcraft show actually and i was talking about exactly this of just focusing on an area that you want to improve on and then moving on to another area and focusing on that rather than trying to do everything in parallel and not really getting good at anything and um he he sort of questioned this and said well you know he'd he'd had an education where they were kind of allowed to be a little bit more like a butterfly jumping from one thing to the next and that had worked from from him but i i wonder when you choose an area to work on you, that's just something that you feel like you know that you kind of fancy working on you're inspired to go and and look at that skill set at the time is that how you think about it you just think well actually i really like to work on trapping or i really like to work on fungi or i really like to work on x and you just sort of follow your intuition on that is that how you come up with what you want to spend time on i do and then it's also seasonal mm -hmm. obviously um you know we have a we have a season that fungi is good in, in the united states and we have a season that trapping is good yeah and so depending on what time of year it is i kind of i look at that as well but yeah i kind of follow my instincts when it comes to learning um whatever piques my interest at that point in time I'm going to do it until I learn it, until I learn everything I want to learn about it, and then I'm going to come back to it. Yeah, yeah. So you are effectively doing what this guy was saying, which is, you know, you're directing your own learning and following what you following your intuition about what you want to learn next. Yeah, I do do that. But, yeah. but I always look at, you know, in our business, when I, when I look at that, I always think, how important is that to my long-term self-reliance? Mm -hmm. Because those are the things I want to learn first. Mm -hmm. and how important is that to my short-term survival because those are obviously more important than the long-term things yeah yeah so learn learn the short-term survival skills first right yeah yeah you know, it, it makes me laugh how many people in 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 the bushcraft community sometimes well, the first thing they want to learn is how to make a friction fire <laughs> and i'm like why is that the first thing you want to learn mm. why wouldn't you learn how to start a fire with every natural material you can find in a ferro rod. Yep. Why wouldn't you learn how to rescue a Vic lighter? Why wouldn't you learn how to use flint and steel to the best of your ability and save that, you know, even though it's a primitive skill, there's nothing easy about it. It's still very complicated because it has a lot of input variables that have a lot of variation within the inputs, mm -hmm. going back to that six sigma. So it's a very complicated process to learn depending on where you live. Some places it's easier than others, but 
compared to flicking your bick on a tender bundle, it's quite complicated. Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed, and and requires some, uh, you know, physical coordination and some muscle memory and all of that. Yeah, yeah, and also and going back to you know at the beginning of our conversation, from a short-term survival standpoint, what makes you think you're ever going to be in that scenario? Are you going to lose the lighter in your pants pocket? Are you going to lose the ferro rod attached to your knife? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that having that kind of onion skin layering of kit on your person and in your day pack, etc., is is important. And you've got those things on you, and you should train to use them. And I mean, I'm always amazed at how people they've got a ferro rod, and they're just always looking for birch bark, and they never look for anything else that they might because yeah. they haven't trained with anything else. And it's right. you know, and you know, there's there's a massive scope for learning a, a broad range of natural materials that you can light in different ways before you ever get on to any of the more complex techniques i agree with that 110 yeah. percent. i mean the the other thing that's good good for people to practice as well is you know they they're using their ferro rod you know on a day-to-day -day basis but okay what if you've got some broken fingers what if you can only use one hand you know how do you <laughs> how yeah, do you right. you know because it's still going to be easier to use your ferro rod in those circumstances than bow drilling. You know, if you've got a broken hand, how are you going to bow drill? Sure. Yeah. You know, we actually had a guy, you know, I told you about that training we do at the military here. Mm -hmm. We actually had a guy on the second, we were teaching them primitive skills. So one of the skills that we taught them was the bow drill fire. Mm -hmm. And we had a guy the second night of the exercise that actually stuck a Mora Garber through the palm of his hand. Mm, nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, how he managed to do it, I'm not exactly sure. I wasn't there when it happened. But that, so we had to figure out how is this guy going to do a bow drill. Mm. Well, we ended up setting up very similar to a, a finished style or a more boreal style trap that you've seen the trigger systems for that catch, uh, that catch Martin and, and things like that. Right. Where you have two logs that compress together mm -hmm. and they're kind of caged in between two sticks. So it makes a scissor. We actually put the set between that scissor and hollowed out an area on the top scissor to put the bow, the drill itself, so that he could actually start a bow drill fire with one hand, just lean on it. Ah, so what was he kneeling it, on? Kneeling on it on the top piece, or he, no? He was kneeling, kneeling on the ground. Mm -hmm. The board was on the bottom piece, pinched in between the spindle, and then the spindle was pinched in between the top, the top log uh -huh. was his handle basically and all he had to do was lean on the handle okay so well his elbow or something onto the handle right. rather than holding right. it right okay yeah right. yeah and it yeah. worked cool and it worked yeah. yeah so a bit of ingenuity yeah now would he have been able to do all of that one-handed i'm not so sure <laughs> yeah that's a good question yeah. you know that that's that's the other side of that coin yeah we made it work one-handed but could he have set all that up with one hand yeah maybe a different question yeah that's a good that's a good question it's worth it's worth exploring these uh potential avenues though isn't it and thinking about absolutely. what's actually realistic yeah absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah. yeah i had a question for you which kind of follows on from from that um okay and it was it was sort of something i was going to ask you anyway um but i think it was echoed in one of the one of the listener questions and we've got some listener questions we can we can do in a little while but it's also something when we first met which was a few years ago at, at the bushcraft show i think maybe the first bushcraft show you came to in the uk and you came around and and said hi at our store we we talked briefly about some of the differences between bushcraft and how bushcraft is perceived in north america and maybe specifically the us and how it's perceived 
and practiced maybe in the UK and Sweden. What are your what are your thoughts on the differences? Because you spent in the last few years, you, you you've become more involved with Mora. I know you've been in Sweden a few times. You've been to the Bushcraft Show in the UK now, and I know you 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 keep track of what's in the Bushcraft and Survival Skills magazine, and you've been involved in that. And so you've probably got quite a good perspective on the differences and similarities in the the scenes now, as it were. What what are your thoughts on that, Dave? Well, you know, I think that nowadays there is a lot more similarity between what bushcrafters do in the U.S. and what bushcrafters do in the U.K. or Sweden or anywhere in Europe. Mm -hmm. And I think that that has, is, a, is a product of social media, mm -hmm. to be honest with you. Uh, but when I, first, when I first started messing with this stuff and, and talking to people and, and learning this stuff, really I think the, the majority of the difference – was that people in the U.S. tend to be more familiar, I guess the word is, with what was called woodcraft in the U.S. And woodcraft really didn't involve necessarily um, as much, it involved more kit, I think. I, th I think that in the beginning of Bushcraft's infancy, probably in the U.K., it was less kit involved and more landscape involved. Mm-hmm. And I think in the U.S., especially because it mostly came from the scouting movement and things like that, it was a little more kit involved and maybe less landscape involved. But you carried more tools to be able to affect the things off the landscape that you wanted to make. The, the difference really, I think, is a mentality. The, the real big difference I see is in Sweden, is where I saw the biggest difference was in Sweden, not necessarily the U.K. I think there's a lot of similarities between the U.K. and the U.S., other than the fact that in the U.S. we have such, um, I'm trying to stay with many political terms here, but we have, we can trap, we can mm -hmm. carry firearms, mm -hmm. we can carry a 10-inch Bowie knife if we want to. And I think, so those things are more concentrated on the U.S. when it comes to being in the woods, period. Whether it's bushcraft, woodcraft, whatever you want to call it, survival, doesn't matter what term you use there's different mentalities in the u.s than there is overseas because of the differences in laws mm -hmm. whereas i can go out and trap my food in the u.s you can't do that necessarily in the uk so the bushcraft mentality in the uk never really encompassed that aspect of of woods lore they had tracking and fungi and fungi is not as concentrated on in the u.s as it is in the UK. Mm -hmm. Should it be? Probably. And in the hill countries and in the in the more backwoods areas, it is. You know, my dad, my stepdad used to hunt mushrooms, but not to the extent that they talk about the use of fungi in the UK, mm -hmm. which it was part of, which is what peaked part of my interest. When I was a kid, we would hunt, you know, like morels and we would hunt sulfur fungus or chicken of the woods but those were limited to about the only two things we would ever look for <laughs> and now that my education is becoming more broad in fungus you know there's hundreds of species of fungus that you can that you can consume out here um, and i think that, that mentality is a much more um, sought after in the uk than it is in the u.s whereas in the u.s the the, the sought after knowledge in the woods is more of the plants the trees, the animals, and what I can use from the animals to affect my survival and things like that because we can hunt them, because we can trap them, 
because we can take so there's more of a primitive skills involving animals and things off the landscape than there is in the uk now in sweden i think it's the odd thing was when i first went to sweden and i started talking to people about bushcraft they a lot of people i talked to had never even heard the term yeah they didn't even know what it was and when i started to explain it to them they said oh you mean camping i said yeah that's pretty much what i mean and when i think back to my childhood that's pretty much what we do you know you go out there and you you have a blanket and you you start a fire and you have some a pot of beans to cook and that's it you're 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 camping but that's bushcraft you know you're making your you're making your fire set off the landscape you're making something to hang your billy can or your pot over the fire off the landscape and you're you're building a frame possibly for a tarp that's bushcraft but it, when i was a kid it was just going out camping as i'm sure it was when you were young yeah yeah and i and i guess that you know you you sort of harking back to the the sort of woodcraft and camping books i mean those two terms went very much hand in hand didn't they it's woodcraft and camping and right. that that kind of baseline level of skill is is the camping is the camping end of it isn't it you know putting up your tarp or, or, or what have you doing some simple pot hangers and cooking over a fire that was the you know what people call camping even you know less than 100 years ago and then absolutely yeah and then i guess you got into maybe a little bit more knowledge of the of the, of the woods and the materials and maybe a bit of um you know making baskets and containers and things and i guess that was more at the kind of woodcraft end of things how to use an axe properly and efficiently you know if you read through you know seaton's book and nesmuk's books and those you know that that was the kind of content of those books back in the back in the day yeah yeah, and, and it's, it's interesting with the Swedes because they 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 definitely they traditionally were an outdoor nation. A lot of people, correct, you know, and you know it's a big area and there's not a huge population. Same with Norway, and you know a lot of these skills were just things that people knew how to do, particularly in the north of the country. And you know that there is this concept of freeluftsliv as well over there, which is kind of a sort of outdoor life. And you know a lot of that's a lot of those basic skills are wrapped up in that, so they don't they don't sort of differentiate it. And and that's something else I've noticed. You know, if, if you go to Norway, for example, you go into you go into a sports shop um, in just a small town, and you know they'll have their cross country skis and in one part and then the kind of camping gear in another part and then in the back of the store they'll have their their hunting you know there'll be shotguns and rifles and the bits and pieces for the the hunting dogs and things and it's all in one store whereas in the uk we you know we've got gun shops you can you can shoot and hunt but you need permission and you know and relative you know firearms licenses and you need permission to shoot on land and whatnot but i mean there are people who hunt you know i, I shoot in the uk um but it is a lot more controlled than i think that is in the us and you know it's interesting in different countries you go to the uk and it's a, you know you go to a specialist firearms dealer and it's a specialist shop and it's not it, it's not in the same store as where you go and get your canoeing gear or your camping gear it's very very separate and it seems to be uh, there's there's almost separate communities that engage in these things and there's not a lot of overlap um here well, whereas in other countries there is more of an overlap yeah i think that's and i think that's a big part of the you know what you were asking about a big part of the difference in the culture of bushcraft in general is what you can do easily and what you can't do easily. Mm. Yeah, it's it, you, if you if you went over to Sweden and you told somebody outside of Stockholm that it was difficult to start a fire in the woods, they'd probably look at you like you were from Mars, <laughs> yeah. because they know all they have to do is walk out and get birch bark, take a match to it, and they're going to have fire. Yeah, you know. Whereas 
down in Florida, that's all. That's not. It's not the same. <laughs> you know, everything down there's wet. Everything's nasty. Um, you can start fire, but you can, there's a little bit of a trick to it. And so, I think there's a different mentality because of things like that. And then again, because of the laws. But I think that social media has closed a lot of those gaps. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of cross pollination, isn't there? And a lot of sharing of skills and people replicating yeah. what they're seeing. Yeah, which I think is a good thing because people can can cherry pick what suits them where they are if they've got a good uh, overview of the different skill sets that are available to them. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, Dave, I often hear you talking about self reliance outfitters and the Pathfinder School, kind of in the same breath. What's what's the relationship and the, between them and the difference between them? Um, the Pathfinder School LLC is an umbrella company, mm -hmm. and it owns the Pathfinder School, which is the school that we teach at in Ohio, which is where I live. Mm -hmm. I live on the school grounds. And then Self-Reliance Outfitters is basically exactly that. It's an outfitting store mm -hmm. and an online shop that's in Indianapolis, Indiana, and, so, and the Pathfinder School LLC owns that as well. Right. Okay. That's clear. So that's kind of where that's... You know, it's the same breath because I own them both. Right. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense. And so what kind of programs are you running at the Pathfinder School, Dave, for everyone's um, we, interest? Sure. We run mm -hmm. a, a basic, intermediate, and advanced level course. The basic course is really your 72-hour scenario. What can I do with the kit that I'm carrying? It's not a whole lot of landscape usage type teachings other than materials to build fires with. Then your intermediate class gets more into what, you know, learning the trees, learning some of the plants, understanding how to build structures, understanding how to replicate a bow saw or a buck saw, understanding how to make a bow drill fire and things like that off the landscape. Then the advanced class really goes into a really navigation heavy session of understanding how to navigate naturally, how to make your own maps, how to do what pole navigation, uh, positive azimuth uniform layout um, to find where you've came from from where you started without a map, things like that. Um, and it goes more into a testing level of the skills that you learned in the basic and intermediate courses. And then we have an instructor course that we started this year that actually starts next month um, to give people a 40-day training course to learn how to start their own school if they want to. It also is going to give us a pool to pull instructors from in the future as we need to replace instructors here at the school. Mm -hmm. um, we, have, we teach blacksmithing. One, two, and three. Blacksmithing one is basic blacksmithing, how to make fire irons, how to make a fire steel, how to make a squirrel cooker, um, how to make a punch and a wall hanger, and how to make nails. Uh, blacksmithing level two is a knife-making class. We do both a forged and material reduction knife in that class. And then blacksmithing three is woodworking tools. They learn how to make a hook knife, a fro, a forged weld of the fro, and a draw knife mm -hmm. so that they can actually do woodworking. And we teach a modern trapping class, which teaches people all aspects of modern trapping from how to obtain traps, how to set traps, care for traps, catch the fur, dispatch the fur, put up the fur and sell the fur, and then use the meat and the byproducts of that animal for other things like bait or food. Um, and then we teach uh, some various courses throughout the year. We have a couple of courses on um, wild edibles. We have a wilderness first aid and wilderness first responder course that we teach here, a certification course. Um, and then we do a, a gathering every year as well in Ohio um, that gets about, usually brings about 300 people hmm. and about 25 vendors together. 
that we have every year in Ohio as well. And that's about the size of it. And every once in a while we throw in a specialty course or, or two. We have a tracking course we're doing this year with Kit from uh, over there in Italy and a, a guy that works for the Pathfinder School who trained uh, a lot of SF people in, tra- in man tracking. Mm-hmm. So we're going to do a tracking class in October this year. With that, we're going to bring her over here for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do those specialty courses every once in a while too. And then we do teach in Scandinavia as well. We have a basic class in Scandinavia in, uh, I want to say it's October. No, September. We have a basic class over there. It's on our, it's on our Facebook page, Scandinavia, uh, Pathfinder School of Scandinavia. And we have a canoe adventure over there for four days as well mm. in, in the same month. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So you enjoy you you enjoy getting over to Sweden. I do like Sweden very. <laughs> I do like Sweden a lot. I've threatened to buy a house over there. And my wife's like, "You're not doing that." So, yeah, I, I'm I'm pretty yeah. I like Sweden a lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're not the only one. We we were we were talking before um, about some of the people we we know in common and. Um, one gentleman that we were talking about beforehand, um, he's also very taken with with Sweden, having been over there for the first time last year. So yeah, it does have that effect on people. So. Yes, it does for yeah. sure. <laughs> no, very nice, very nice people and very nice country. So um, yeah, it's a wonderful country yeah, for sure. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And you've got a very strong relationship with Mora now as well. <laughs> yes, I am Mora's global one of Mora's global ambassadors. They actually have two. Johan Skullman is the other one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do things for Morak Neve globally as far as events and things like that go. Then I also work with them in product development and design and product testing. And so what does that involve? You, you said you're doing quite a lot of shows for them now. You're going quite a few quite a few trips around the world. Yeah, I do all of the Moore Adventures, which is a new thing that Moore started two, three years ago. They had the first Moore Adventure in Sweden which is basically a more sponsored event that brings people together for three days of hiking and teaching and, and just hanging out around campfires and fellowship. Um, and now they're doing, they're expanding their horizons to do those adventures in other places. Last year we did one in Japan. It went really well. So we're repeating that this year. Um, this year will be the first one in Australia. We're doing one in Australia this year. And then we're also going to do one in the U S probably next year, if not late in this year. Mm-hmm. And are they are they kind of just open to anybody to apply for? How do they work? Because I've seen again, I've seen in your social media and a couple of the other people that I know um, who have been to the Mora Adventure in in Sweden. But how does it work? How do people get onto that if they want to? I'm sorry, Paul. What did you say? Um, oh, my dog was barking. <laughs> it's okay. Um, how do people get onto the Mora Adventure if they want to? You mean, oh, how do they attend them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I've seen I've yeah. seen you post about them, and I've seen a few other people that I know who were present at the ones in Sweden. But um, for people listening, if they wanted to attend something like that, how, how can they do that? How would they do it? Yes, absolutely. They they advertise it on their website. Their the ticket sales are limited, but you can go to their website to find information on that. As far as the more adventures overseas and places like Japan and Australia. Probably those tickets will also be sold either on the Mora site or at the distributor level site for Mora knives in those countries. Right. And do you, do you know where in Australia it is? Yeah the the Australia one is not a Mora is not a legitimate Mora adventure this year. It's going to be more like an adventure weekend that's going to be sponsored by Mora as kind of a trial run right. to see how it works out. And I I think it is outside of Sydney. Right. 
okay. I think. South e- Southeast Australia somewhere, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Now, it's just I know there's a few people who listen to this podcast in Australia, so they'll probably be interested in that. So, oh, okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah, it's going to be a good time, I think. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Cool. So, Dave, got some listener questions here, and I think some of these overlap a little bit with what we've talked about but there's some kind of interesting ones and some left field ones and some questions I certainly wouldn't have thought to, to ask. So um, I'll just go in the order that they were they were posted. And these are just, I asked people on my Facebook page um, what they would like to ask you, people who listen to the podcast. And um, first one is from Andrew Davis. And he asked, if you could go walk, um, go walk about anywhere in the world with anybody, past or present, who, where and why? <laughs> wow. That's quite I would a broad probably question. want to. I would probably have wanted to be with Daniel Boone at some point in time when he was settling areas of Kentucky um, in the New River Valley areas of Kentucky to see what that what this was like back then, what the United States was like back then. Because I've heard stories told that if this country had not changed and when it was first discovered when the Americans were first settled, I guess is the better word for it, um, by, by the English, that a squirrel could walk from Maine to Florida without leaving the, without touching the ground. Hmm. And I would have liked to have seen this country at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all would. <laughs> Those of us that, that are interested in bushcraft and woodcraft just to see yeah. forest extending that far. Yeah. Yeah. And for those people that don't know, who it was daniel boone uh daniel boone was <laughs> you, you i would encourage somebody to look that up on google yeah. to get the exact particulars of daniel boone but he's he's a folk hero in the united states and he was a he was an explorer he was a pioneer he he had a lot of contact with different native american tribes some good some bad um he was very instrumental in the settling and the exploration of the cumberland river valley and in Kentucky, in the Kentucky area, and there's lots of areas in Kentucky that are named after him as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Well, I, I I will try and add some links to the um, the blog post that accompanies this. So I'll try and link to uh, Wikipedia pages and things, and Mora pages and stuff, so people can easily reference all of these things. Um, next next question is from um, Brian Leggett, and his question is. Um, I've noticed over the years that the number of tattoos that Dave has has increased. A lot of them are, I think, bushcraft-related and clearly mean a lot to Dave. Um, it might be interesting to the listeners if Dave were to talk through what a few of them uh, represent to him. And I know this isn't a visual media um, on on the podcast, but uh, we'll do our best. If you don't mind answering that question, Dave. If it's not too- I think a lot of them kind of follow what we talked about when it comes to that immersion type training and immersion culture type immersion. I mean, I have blacksmithing tattoos. I have tattoos that are more Viking, uh, Scandinavian in nature. I have tattoos that are more Celtic in nature. Um, they're just, and some of them just caught my fancy. And frankly speaking, I have several tattoos, um, that reference my wife mm-hmm. and things like that. So a lot of them are just personal. I wanted the tattoo. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Do you do you get them when you're on the road? Do you kind of? No, I no? actually get them all from the same guy, and he's local. I say local, about forty five minutes away. My wife and I go to him all the time. My wife's got probably more tattoos than I've got, <laughs> um, and so 
we visit him quite often and <laughs> line his pockets, <laughs> if, as it were. Good customers. Uh, to get some ink. But uh, it's I, it's more of an addiction, I think, than anything else after a while. You get to the point where you're like, oh, i gotta, I got to put something in that spot. Right. Yeah. So it's a work in progress. Yes. Yeah. Oh, cool. Thank you. Um, so this is from Rude um, in Belgium, and he asks, um, I'd like to know what Dave's favorite fictional book is, which is related to survival or bushcraft. Wow. Mm. Um, <laughs> to be honest with you, I haven't read very many. Um, there's one called The Savage Country that's that I've read a, a few chapters of. Right. I'm not a big fan of fiction books. Um, I generally, the books that I read are written by, you know, old woodcrafters, old people who taught these type skills before I did, and stories, diaries, and things like that from times of the Indian Wars, uh, Reverend, Doge, Reverend Joseph Dodgers' uh, journals and things like that. And then I read a lot of technical stuff, field guides, field manuals, things like that. I don't really read a lot of fiction, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. No, I think I think that sounds very similar to me, David. And I have to say, if I read fiction at all, I tend to read science fiction, just stuff that's completely different. To, right. <laughs> to, you know, sort of half an hour before bed or something just to take my mind off the work stuff and just to kind of go into a different world. And I think, I, 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 yeah, I don't read a lot of... I don't think there there is a huge amount of sort of fiction. I mean, I think there's there are some kids' stories and things, aren't there, which are kind of based on survival skills and uh, you know and whatnot but i don't think there's a ton of it is there um as a, as a I genre i don't think there is in the u.s for sure no. i mean you, there's a few books out there that have been out for a long time mm. uh, but they're not something that get written quite often nowadays no. no 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 most of them are more fantasy related nowadays yeah true true um Okay, well, this kind of follows on a little bit from what we were talking about before and stays in the in the book vein for, for a moment. This is from Michael Holtman, and he said, I'd be very interested in any books or other resources Dave might recommend for learning how to apply Six Sigma to business and life. And, really, and he says, I really appreciate the work you put into the podcast as well. So that's that's nice. Thank you, Michael. So, yeah, any, any resources or any books on Six Sigma? You know what? I don't have them right in front of me. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I remember the titles are off the top of my head, for sure. But I would say that if you look at any book that references uh, the systems used by Toyota or Motorola, mm -hmm. you would be in the right ballpark. Right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Cool. So they can do a search on Amazon or something, or yeah. do, do a Google do a Google search on Six Sigma and probably find some info there. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's probably hundreds and hundreds of books out there, and I haven't read a direct book on Six Sigma probably since I was an engineer. Mm -hmm. So it's been years. Yeah, um, I've probably got some stash in my bookcase somewhere, but it would be hard for me to find them right now yeah. amongst everything else. No, understood, understood. Um, Question from Leon Huggins. His question is, just wondering what Dave's first aid kit is like. Uh-oh. <laughs> is that a loaded question? Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. For sure. Um, honestly, <clears throat> I have a full first aid and trauma kit that we have here at the school mm -hmm. that we use and we carry to take care of students. Personally, personally, I'm not allergic to anything that I know of. 
I do not readily catch poison ivy. I've never been sick on water. Mm-hmm. And so my general first aid kit involves really the 10 C's. I've got duct tape. I've got cordage. I've got a bandana. Mm-hmm. I generally carry uh, some type of something that I can use to readily stop bleeding quickly if I need to. And other than that, I really don't worry too much about it. Mm-hmm. That may be the worst thing to possibly say on a podcast <laughs> like this, but it's the truth. I mean, I've, I've literally, I mean, I've been cut to the point where I've sewn myself up with a carpet needle and a pair of pliers and I just did it and yeah. dealt with it. Yeah. Um, obviously I've burned cut shut with gunpowder on national television. So I have a pretty high tolerance for pain. I've pulled my own teeth with a pair of pliers. So I don't really worry that much about that because I figure anything that comes, I can handle with whatever I'm carrying. Mm-hmm. I guess that's part of that mentality of understanding what all you can do with what you're carrying. Makes sense. And I think that's an important distinction between what you do for yourself and what you do for people for whom you have a duty of care. And I think that's really important. You know, it's like I wouldn't do a wilderness canoe trip in Canada with um, clients without taking a GPS and a sat phone with me. I I might consider doing one on my own without them though but that's a different consideration when you when you're it looking is. when you're looking after other people you've got a higher level of, of duty of care for them so that's right yeah so i think it's worth making that distinction for people yeah i agree with you yeah um question from sean blake and he asks um have you thought about doing a school in the uk and then this, the second part of his question is what he thinks is the fundamental difference between bushcraft and survival. I think we kind of covered covered that in in a sense in terms of prioritizing what you learn first. But if you want to add to that, Dave, please do. So okay, yeah. um, probably to answer the first question or the first part of the question, really, I think there are some very quality schools in the UK already. Um, I think there's very quality schools in Sweden, even though I do teach there. Mm-hmm. I only teach there because it's convenient um, and because of my relationship with Mora. And I only teach one class a year there. Yeah. But as far as opening up a bushcraft school in the UK, I almost feel like I would be stepping into someone's zone mm-hmm. or stepping out of my lane, as it were. I mean, I'm not familiar with the plants, the fungi, and the landscape in, in England like someone would be that lives there mm-hmm. or in the UK. So I don't feel that is it would be like me going to Canada to try to teach someone boreal bushcraft. Yeah, it's not my it's not my forte, and so for me to yes, you can teach people basic survival mentality and fundamentals no matter where you're at if you understand the properties that plants and and trees possess that you need to affect short term survival and you could do that. Yeah, and I, there would be no problem me coming over there to teach if I were going to someone else's school as a guest, mm-hmm. but to go over there and open up a school. I just feel like I would be stepping on someone's toes that probably already has a very reputable school and that I already have respect for in the UK like yourself. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's appreciated and it makes sense. Or maybe come for a visit sometime, Dave, if you want. For sure. Talk about that I should have came when Jack McCormick was there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, he speaks highly of the stuff he's done with you over there. So, And, you know, people people shouldn't forget they can jump on a plane and come to come to you. Oh, for sure. I've had lots of people from the UK, Australia, yeah. Germany um south america yeah it happens all the time mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's not that hard uh, do you now, know the second part of your question can i just while we're on the subject of australia do you know a guy called gordon deadman oh yeah very yeah. very well yeah because <laughs> he's done he's he speaks highly of you as well and he's done some stuff with us in the uk and uh yeah good aussie bloke so yeah th- he's people, a very good guy yeah 
Very good guy. Yeah. So the second part of your question is the difference between bushcraft and survival. I hear that question a lot. Mm. And I see it a lot on forums. I see it on groups. I see it on you know YouTube. I hear it. And it really, to me, the difference between bushcraft and survival is survival to me is an immediate short-term scenario of life or death. In other words, if I don't change my current situation within the next 60 minutes or so, I'm not going to have to worry about it anymore. I'm, I've dumped my canoe in freezing water, swam to shore with nothing but what's in my pockets. If I don't start a fire and get dried out, I'm going to suffer from I'm going to suffer from hypothermia. Mm-hmm. That's that's a survival scenario to me. The difference between that and bushcraft is, if I'm bushcrafting, I'm camping. I plan to be there. I'm going to be doing things that I wouldn't necessarily have to do or want to do in a survival scenario because they're going to take more time and energy, expend more calories, expend more hydration than I need in an emergency scenario. So I think the difference between bushcraft and survival is survival is an emergency. Bushcraft is not. Do the skills intermix? Absolutely, they do. If you have good bushcraft skills, that can only help you in a short-term survival scenario, but they're not the same thing. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a matter of context it's a matter of priority isn't it so yeah indeed so what's next for you dave what's you know what's um challenging you or inspiring you at the moment in terms of moving things forward for yourself areas that you're working on places you want to go books in the works what what's next for you dave well i've got a book that comes out in a couple months here um that was my wife's idea actually called the Illustrated Encyclopedia of Bushcraft, which is an 8 by 10 hardcover book that has over 350 illustrations in it. So it will kind of be a compendium or a, a partnering book to the other ones that I've written, but it will have a lot more illustrations in it than, than text. Right. And then I would like to write a kid's book. Hmm. You know, you were talking about kid's books earlier. I'd like to write a book very similar to you know, Daniel Baird and Thomas Seaton wrote back in the day or or Bernard Mason who wrote books on camping for boys, woodcraft for, for boys. Those are the kind that's the kind of book I'd like to write next. A book that focuses on young people and what they can do to get out in the woods and how they can make shift kit from things they might not necessarily afford to buy, but things from around the house. Yeah. How do I make a Billy can out of a, you know, number ten coffee can? <laughs> how do I make a hammock out of a bed sheet? How do I make a how do I waterproof a tarp? from you know a high quality bed sheet things like that um are what i'd like to write next and then overseas travel is has been my goal for the last couple years to to get to be able to give back really and i think i started at the bushcraft show when i noticed the first time i was there how anxious people were and how engaging people were with me at the bushcraft show it made me realize that i've got Lots and lots of people who supported me over the years that aren't just from the United States. So being able to go to these other countries allows me to be able to possibly see them one-on-one, thank them in person, and maybe talk to them and meet them in person as well. Yeah. Now, that was one of the things that I noticed uh, uh, when you came to the Bushcraft Show was that you – you were always doing something or you were always talking with someone, you know, having a beer, sit, sitting down at lunchtime, you know, to and fro between stalls. Just so many people, you know, engage with you. And, and similar, you know, similar with me, you know, one of the things I joke about is it takes me about 40 minutes to get from the stall to the toilet and back because there's people. <laughs> <laughs> people there's just, truth in that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So you've got you to plan your visits. You don't want to be desperate when you set off because you, you're not going <laughs> to yeah. get... 
Um, but yeah, there's so many people that want to speak to you and um, want to want to say thank you and they appreciate, you know, I've had people, I had one guy come up to me at the Bushcraft show and say about these podcasts that thank you, you have made my, you know, household work and my ironing and things that I have to do, ironing my shirt for work a lot more interesting because I can listen to these podcasts. So yeah, people That's do. Awesome. Yeah, people do like to uh, say that they appreciate what what you do, and I, I think that was one thing that was really nice that you you just engaged with that. You just you know with open arms, you just spent three or four days just engaging with people, and I, and I know people really appreciate that. Um, well, I think that's something in this, probably in every industry, but in this industry, I think that's an important thing that people don't get enough of or don't see enough. Um, it. it it boggles my mind how someone in this industry could charge money for an autograph. It mm. boggles my mind in this industry how anybody could be hesitant to take a picture with someone or a selfie with someone. It just, I, I see it and it, I don't understand it. No. No. Oh, we're just people. Everyone's just people. And, uh, yeah, it's it's nice to it's nice to meet people and uh, I agree. yeah yeah no I enjoy it and I think if you come at it from the right perspective I mean we talked about education and you know I've always come at this from the point of view of wanting to share what I know and to help people and I think you do too and um, yeah it's nice when people appreciate that and say thank you and it's nice to actually put um, faces to names as well you know I've had people that you know have followed my blog for years and i know from the you know they're a regular commenter and i recognize the name and then they come and say hi to you at, at a show or an event and and it's really nice to 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 meet people like that as well so, it is i agree with that i've had that happen a lot of times yeah dave where's the best pe place for people to find you online if they want to say hi um if they want to talk to me directly mm -hmm. probably facebook or instagram right. probably facebook really um, you can just type my name into Facebook and it'll take you to the page. Okay. Uh, I've got a couple different pages on Facebook. We have a large group on Facebook called the Pathfinder Learning Center. Okay. That anyone is welcome to join. It's got about 15,000 members. Mm -hmm. I'm on that thing constantly. Even when I'm overseas, I'm typing onto that thing. So if anybody wants to ask me a question directly or, or tell me something directly or, you know, get advice from other people even who are very talented in this, in this industry, there's a lot of people on that page that meet that criteria. Excellent, excellent. Well, I'll link, I'll link, to, I'll find those and link to those in the in the show notes as well, so people can can find those easily. Um, that's brilliant. Thank you. And um, I think that really, I think that really covers the broad the broad brushstrokes of, of of what I wanted to cover, and we've we've covered the listener questions there. Um, is there anything that you'd like to to add or? have a message for people or encourage people to do no i mean i, I would just always encourage people to get outside just mm. stay out stay dirty you know stay hungry for <laughs> knowledge and stay dirty getting that knowledge and i think that's that's the most important thing and then obviously just wanted to thank you and, and tell you how much i appreciate you and how much i respect you and what you do over there in the uk and i appreciate you having me on your show thank you dave and thank you for taking the time to be here really appreciate it and um yeah hopefully we can have a round two at some point and uh, that'd be can, good yeah absolutely thank you for your time dave really appreciate it good to catch up oh, no worries brother cheers well thanks again to dave for joining me for all the links and books mentioned, check out the page on my blog associated with this podcast. For all the show notes, etc., that's paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash podcast 41. That's 
forward slash podcast for one. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please recommend the Paul Kirtley podcast to some of your friends who might also like it. And if you're not already subscribed to the Paul Kirtley podcast on your favorite podcast app, remember to hit that subscribe button right now so you don't miss out on any of the forthcoming episodes. Thanks for listening to this episode, and I look forward to speaking to you on the next episode of the Paul Kirtley podcast, where my guest will be none other than Moors Kahansky. Until then, take care and enjoy the outdoors. <laughs>